All right. Well, welcome to today's episode, everybody. Um, today I have Dr. Pamela Arneal, uh, who is the medical director for an organization called 220.org. Um, they basically specialize in veteran mental health and want to say thank you, first off, for joining me. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Arnell and let her kind of introduce herself and Thanks. go from there. Okay, thank you. So actually, I'm the executive director, not medical. Hey, when, no, that's okay, because typically when people think uh, medical, they're thinking on the medicine side of it, but I am the executive director. Um, I became involved with 220 three years ago, and it's funny how I actually <laughs> became involved with 220. Um, so I have five years as a reserve deputy in my county. I've been in the county fire department since 2008 and it was my assistant fire chief who said hey we want you to go through this training and I said nope I got enough on my plate um he convinced our fire chief who then goes through the training and then after after he went through the training they kind of pulled me to the side and said hey we really want you to go through the training that training was three years ago um I said, nope, I had too much on my plate. At the time, I was the youth service officer. And the youth service officer in in my state, in Tennessee, it's going to be a different equivalent in other states. But basically, anytime a juvenile comes to court, be it for a dependent neglect charge or status offense or, you know, breaking the law, which if they were 18, they'd go to jail that delinquent side of it, you know, um, or if they're abused and neglected, then it's going to come to the juvenile court. And I, my grandkids called me the kid police. <laughs> That's what it was called. So in saying that, um, I felt that I definitely had enough on my plate. And when they asked me to go through the training, I said, okay, just to appease them. But I did say um, that Dan, Dan Jarvis is, He's actually the one who spoke 220 into existence. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, him and, and how 220 came into play five years ago. But I said that Dan would have to run me because I wouldn't put my professional name just with any entity or organization. I don't work that way. And so he did. And <clears throat> that night, uh, that was the first night that I slept without Ambien. And the thing, it was kind of odd because the things that I thought that were bothering me, which would have been a lot of the childhood stuff, uh, it wasn't. What was really bothering me were the three calls with the sheriff's department and four calls at that time with the fire department. Um, so I kind of basically had stuff, stuff those, um, but those actually were more of the, the pressing things, which caused me to have more of those you know, not sleeping or waking up when I sleep and not getting that very deep REM sleep. So I went through the training and then it was, it was funny because my husband, who's a veteran, said, when I got done, he said, you, you look drunk. <laughs> not, I've not been drinking, but I feel so good. <laughs> and he said, well, did you drink in class? And I'm going, dude, it was through Zoom, I no, I didn't. Oh, we weren't drinking. I said, I don't know, but I got to go lay down. And I went and uh, lay down, and that was the first night that I went to sleep without Ambien three years ago <laughs> in April. Um, 
so the next day I got up and I, you know, we met and, and I asked him, I said, what'd you do to me? <laughs> My husband thought I was drunk and I hadn't had anything to drink and I was able to sleep. And so basically, uh, 22-0 has two protocols. They're the trauma resiliency protocol and the emotions management process. It's based off of the neurological linguistic programming. You're not allowed to talk about any of the content. Uh, we do that one to protect you, the veteran and the first responder, but to also protect our peer coaches that are trained. 22-0 became into uh, existence five years ago, April of 2018. Uh, Dan was, he's a veteran, but he's also retired law enforcement. The co-founder, Nick Davis, is also um, a veteran. So Dan Jarvis went to the VA uh, after having multiple deployments, losing a lot of those that were with him in combat. Um, and he had an appointment, they kept the appointment, then made another appointment. The VA canceled the appointment and rescheduled multiple appointments. And ultimately, Dan just kind of went and found help himself. And he... Um, ended up going through the master training for the NLP and he created some processes that work. And what it does is, you know, the content is there. The content never changes. And the, the reactions that people have being at the fight or flight or the negative emotions are related to that traumatic event, such as uh, sad, anger, fear, uh, guilt, um, survivor guilt, shame, some of those negative emotions gets connected to the um, amygdala and to the limbic system. And so what we do is with the two protocols, we're disconnecting the fight or flight and then the negative emotions from the amygdala and the limbic system so that your neural pathways are reprogramming themselves and changing and disconnecting. So therefore, when you think about that event, you may be at a 10 before going through the process and then you're down to a zero because you're not having those same reactions. Okay, so essentially the way the program works is you go through it, you reprocess how the brain reacts and the things that it triggers when you're having those thoughts. So that way you don't get that same physical reaction anymore those same physical triggers don't kind of become overwhelming for the individual um and i find it poignant because of the name of your organization because i don't think there's a lot of people out there that realize what the 22 stands for i do because i'm a veteran and i've lost three friends to it um but i think it's important to note that the 22-0 the main reason why you got started where it's like i started up stuff to kind of help combat the homelessness epidemic that happens among veterans. Your organization was started to try and stop suicide among veterans. And I wanted to uh, allow you to kind of talk about that and just kind of that particular challenge and how it faces our veteran community today. Yeah. So five years ago, the average was 22 a day, but realistically, let's look at that. <clears throat> so realistically, we're not, we know there's going to be more than 22 veterans a day. 
Um, and, and there are several ways that I kind of gather that. At one point in time, there was an article that was published where it reported there were 44 a day. Uh, but however, you can't find that document anymore. It just happens to be that, you know, several of us saved that uh, article that was published. The other part of that is when there is a suicide, and, and I served on the Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network back from the inception of when it started <clears throat> in the late 90s, early 2000. And ultimately, a suicide is going to be up to the medical examiner because they have to make that decision. And so sometimes you're going to see where there was an accidental or undetermined um, that is on a death certificate, well, a lot of the times that's going to be also or could be also a suicide. So the numbers are not going to be completely accurate um, because you've got to have a consistency in data reporting and there's not a consistency in data reporting. I know there isn't in Tennessee and I know it's not in the other states. So therefore, you know, the Office of Vital Records, they go with what's given to them. But on average, there's 22 veterans that, that you know, that die a day by suicide. And when you lose one, that's that's losing too many. And so basically 22-0, that's how Dan Jarvis created it. You know, he was at that point where he was suicidal. Um, he had a plan and was getting ready to take the next step with that action plan until he heard some little feet upstairs and he knew that there were children at home and he was a not going to do that. He was not going to harm somebody else. And he said, fine, 22 to zero. Our job is to get rid of, you know, those that are in traumatic stance or have, you know, that are suicidal to get that to zero so that we become irrelevant and we have to find us another job. No, I, I hope and pray that becomes a reality. I don't ever think it will, um, unfortunately, because um, just the nature of war and combat and um, a lot of people over the year have asked me what what it's like and I've and I've said this a lot to people and it's like the army did a great job preparing you to go over and do your job but they do a shit job trying to teach you how to come home and that's where the big thing is is that you have no idea how to reintegrate back into society and if you're not an active duty soldier and you're a reservist or a National Guard that gets activated, you go through six or eight months of training, you go overseas, you come home. There is no like six or eight months of getting you to readjust back. It is literally you're you're off the plane and as fast as you can turn in your stuff, you are off active duty and you're back in your civilian life. Yeah. Um, That's true. And it is absolutely a strange experience coming home for the first time because you don't realize just how much your basic self has shifted and how mm -hmm. you, you come to operating in a very specific environment that when you come home, it's just weird is the best way to put it. You're like, I don't know what to do anymore. Um, and I think that's something that I don't think a lot of people realize. I think veterans know it. I think veterans from all times know it. Um, but I don't think a lot of the public realizes it. 
And then I don't think the public realizes that like what you were talking about with Dan's story is that's all too commonplace at the VA because they're so overloaded, especially with the mental health, that it's not uncommon for people, you know, if you're lucky, you might get in there once, once a month, twice a month, you'd be ecstatic. Right. And <laughs> services are just way overloaded is the only way to really say it. They're doing the best they can with the ability of what they've got to deal with. So I'm not trying to rag on the VA there anyway, but I don't think people realize just how difficult it is to access the services you need at the VA. And the VA, the access that you got to go through to get to them isn't necessarily the most user-friendly process either. So um, with your guys' program, what besides veterans, is there any other groups that you really service? Because that's a thought with like first responders and... Mm -hmm. There is, but I want to kind of go back to what you were talking about with the transition in pace. So my husband's a veteran. Um, he served 26 years in the military. He was Army. And then when he did the eight years, he rode over to National Guard. Um, so he was in Desert Storm. Uh, when he and I, when he and I got together, and, you know, we had met and everything, there, he was just different. Um and when I say he was different, there were, you know, there were times we would be talking and he would just give this far away look and I'm going, hello, <laughs> are you listening to me? Um, and so one of the things which when he and I got together, he was, you know, he'd already just rolled over into the National Guard and even going from being full time in the Army to the National Guard, but yet still having that civilian piece. You know, it it took a toll on him because the adjustment factor, you know, part-time I'm here, part-time I'm here. And so trying to get those to line up, uh, it, it was very difficult. And when I think back to, you know, the things that he would do from a veteran spouse, you know, he would be just sitting there and he would just look and, you know, the nights he would wake up and, you know, in the middle of the night, just jumping up. And he was having dreams, nightmares, you know. I knew from a clinical point side that that's what was going on, but to actually live that as a veteran spouse and to see that, um, a lot of people don't understand from the spouse side of it as well. So I'm glad that you pointed that out because it is an adjustment. But then when you have children, <laughs> so when you've got children involved in the mix, it's not just the the spouse, you know, that's being impacted, but those reactions are being picked up by the kids. No matter how hard you try and keep that from the children, kids are smart. They can just pick up on the energy and, and they know when mom or dad isn't right. They know when mom or dad is struggling, they can't explain it. They don't know why but they know there's something going on. And so that can be what we sometimes call a vicarious trauma. The child didn't experience the trauma, but because of the trauma, they're seeing that their family, their parents, um, their caregiver that, you know, whoever it is that's raising them is going through. A lot of the times hearing things and seeing things can cause them to have trauma and people don't understand that, which leads into that other part so our mission clients for 220 are going to be veteran, 
all branches. Um, we're actually, we're getting a lot of active duty right now. A lot of referrals coming in for active duty, but um, that's all branches, uh, reserves as well. But it's also for the first responder, meaning law enforcement, fire, uh, EMTs, EMS, but it's also their spouse, legal spouse, their minor children living in the home and Gold Star families. They do not pay for any of the sessions. We use a telehealth platform. So our our coaches are throughout the United States and they're all trained peer coaches. So if it's you know a veteran, I'm gonna connect them with another veteran. If it's law enforcement, I'm gonna connect them with another law enforcement. All of our coaches are trained and specifically are only allowed to use the protocols that we have. It's not talk therapy. You're not going to be exposed. It's not like EMDR. You don't discuss the content of those events. We don't let you. That protects you, but that protects my coaches as well. So any of those, you know, veterans, um, law enforcement, fire, EMS, the spouse, the minor children that are living inside the home, then they're going to be covered in addition to the Gold Star families. They will not, there's no cost to them. Um, basically they have one session, two sessions, three sessions, what, however many sessions we prefer two or three sessions to make sure we get it all. So whatever that event is that say you trigger that, that, you know, that really comes up and bites you a lot, that event is what we're going to work on first, but we're also going to go back and clear everything else. So it's going to be you know, the deployments. And then it's also going to be things all the way back to childhood because a lot of times children experience traumas. Now, let's say you today may not think that what that that event that happened at nine or 10 years old was traumatic, but that, you know, Ron at nine, 10, it was still traumatizing. So it's still compounded. It's still there. And we're going to clear it all out. We're going to get it out. And you say like, you do it mostly in like one to three sessions. Mm-hmm. That seems awfully quick, mm-hmm. especially like I'm sure there's people with a scientific background that are looking at it right now and just going, nope, that's way too good. You can't do all this stuff in one to three sessions. Um, how much of an effect, because I mean, you've been through it yourself. Um, how much of an effect and how long lasting is it for individuals that have gone through your program? Um, so we have the pre and the post scores. So anyone that goes through the process, they're going to have a pre-assessment, the trauma screen, the anxiety screen, and the depression screen. And then after they've had their sessions, be it, I don't know, one, two, or three, or four sessions, um, that we're going to do the same thing. We're going to give a time frame for the brain to con you know, continue having the neural pathways change and reprocess all that stuff about 10 to 15 days. Then we're going to contact them to get the post assessment. It's the same assessment. It's just before and after. Um, we, ha- <clears throat> we have individuals that have, I mean, that everybody's different. So I can speak for me, you know, three years ago, I still sleep. <laughs> um <laughs> To say that I still sleep, that's saying something, uh, minus the the medical piece. So let me explain about the medical piece. Um, like I said earlier, my husband was in Desert Storm. Two years ago, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. Uh, they were able to remove that tumor, 
no treatment, like post-treatment as far as chemo or anything. Uh, January 29th of this year, I had to take him to the emergency room. We found out he had pancreatic cancer. So there's been nights that I've not slept because of his health. Um, yeah, so we're at a point where, you know, hospice is coming in. Um, we also have found out because we, you know, in talking with him, it was determined it, it's up under the PACT Act because he was he was in the burning pits um, over Desert Storm. So we now know that it all you know, is all related to that. So when I say I'm not sleeping is not because of those events, it's because of his health. Um, that does interfere with my sleep. But as far as the events that I experienced that were um, a really big issue, you know, um, from the Sheriff's Department, from the, you know, from the fire department, I can tell you about those stories and I don't have those emotions that I did before. Um, I can tell you about them and then not <clears throat> hear like a song or uh, like a smell. There's a certain smell being in the fire department. If you, for those that have been in the fire department, you don't know what I'm talking about. When you come on a fire and, and there's a burning body, you're going to know there's a distinct oh, yeah, smell no. to that. I yeah. Mean, regardless yeah. of that, if you've spent any time in a first responder role, um, you're going to have know. that are going to take you back someplace. Yeah, you're going to know. And so, but, you know, before I did just even the slightest hint of that, I would trigger and I would just, and when I said I would trigger, I would just, you know, get upset. I would cry, kind of pulled away to myself. I would pull away from the family. <clears throat> I don't do that now. Um, we have individuals that have gone through the program that are still very, very big supporters five years later because they know that what we do is, um, you know, we don't charge. And so they help with fundraising to get the funding because we're going to pay the coaches. So the coaches get paid and you've got to have that money somewhere. Um, and so they help with this fundraising. Um, some of them want it to come back and be trained as coaches. And we've got, a, got them trained as coaches and they're working with clients. Um, it, it just depends. So to give you a specific number, I can't do that because everybody's different and everybody's unique. Um, anything that they're out of, that the trauma that they experienced, that they worked on with us, that stuff is old. Now, can something happen and you have a new trauma? Most definitely. Um, prime example would be someone that, I don't know, I'm gonna make up an, an example, um, someone that may have gone through the process six months, a year, two years ago, and they scored zeros on the post-assessment and then they encounter or go through another trauma, something else happens that's traumatic for them, then they contact us and we're going to take care of that as well. You have to be past the trauma. For someone that's in like a domestic violence situation or that's in the trauma where it's ongoing, um, and when I say that, I'm talking like legal matters, then we're going to ask, we're going to work with you on the negative emotions, but we're going to ask as far as the trauma piece, you've got to be outside of that trauma piece. Okay. So um, how does that work with the act? You said you got a lot of active duty personnel reaching out. Um, 
So service in and of itself is not considered the trauma, obviously, I guess, because then you'd be dealing with only veterans, first responders, law enforcement, fire, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. I identify only a little too well with what you said, where it's like if you've worked fire or done that, where you there's that smell. And I know from experience, you catch a certain whiff of something, it's instantaneous. It's not, mm -hmm. I don't think people understand. It's like, I can only do it like, because most people, when they have that smell, they think of like a positive emotion, like they smell pancakes in the morning or something cooking on the grill or coffee brewing. And they get that real like, oh, that's going to taste so good. It's like that. But there ain't no like silver lining at the end of the rainbow. When you have that little, you're automatically back someplace and you're back there because of that situation that happened in it. Right. Um, I tried it. It's like as an ER nurse, I always tried not to make fun of, of smells that came into the department because we would get some lovely ones sometimes. And people are like, I'm like, because I've been this smell before. Like, I've walked back onto the fob after a mission, and people 20 feet in front of me outside were like, oh my God, what the hell is that smell? And I'm like, sorry, that's me. And I was just trucking back to my living quarters so I could try and get a shower because I knew I smelled absolutely horrible. But by that point, I've smelled it for so many hours that I would become numb to it. But everybody around me, it was like, you could just see the looks on everybody's faces when they got within like, 20 feet again um right. and then i think burn pit smell is also another smell that a lot of us get, get to come home with um mm -hmm. it's, it's not so much i think anymore but i know early days i think it was up until about oh wait 2010 we were still burning so much stuff that yeah no and i i tell everybody you know file your disability stuff go to the va do whatever you can you're treating it like it's an insurance company that doesn't want to pay out after a bad accident because you've, if you served, you, you've earned those benefits. Mm -hmm. And I am all for everybody getting absolutely everything they can because I think that, you know, everybody should, I think everybody in this country should probably have the entitlement to get free health care because this country is more than rich enough. But I think for the veterans, it's more important because there's so many dynamics of the mental and the social and the physical that go together with it, that there is a service that you have to do inside the VA in order to take care of that veteran wholly that I don't think necessarily has the same amount on the outside to take care of individuals. Um, not to say that that dynamic doesn't exist because I'm not just counting that because Lord knows there's some people that grew up in some horrific situations just in this country irregardless but it's just it's hard to describe it unless you know what it is you're dealing with or you've dealt with it or you've been through it that <clears throat> it's like when you have a vet walk into your office it's not just the fact that they need help mentally for whatever traumas they've been through through service but chances are they're going to have chronic pain because they've ripped up their body in some way shape or form doing what they've been doing there's the social economic dynamic because depending on what you're doing on some of like one or two decisions that you made you might be homeless you very well might be almost homeless and so when you're so worried about am i going to have a place to sleep there's other aspects of your care that just go right out the window 
And so it's just a really, really, really different dynamic to what you have to provide. And I think that there's a lot of grace that has to be given to the people that do it. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what actually happens and what veteran care is amongst the general population. Because we live in a time now where, you know, less than 1% of the American population is serving in uniform. So chances are more people know cops yeah. than they know veterans. Yes, and that's true. And, you know, and a lot of times people don't stop to think. And, and the reason I say that is because, so I've got a lot of uncles that were veterans. You know, I didn't understand and conceptualize. I was young. I, you know, I was a lot, a lot younger than I am right now. But um, knowing now what I know, it was very, very, very noticeable to me now when I would see my uncles, they had post-traumatic stress. You know, one of my uncles, and, and I'll never, ever forget, never forget this. He was in Vietnam. And, you know, when he, and I was small, but I remember when he came back, he just was different. Um, and was, he really kind of just reclused away from the family. He was there, but he was not there. You know, and I would go up and talk with him. And I remember trying to, you know, carry on childlike conversations because I was a kid. But I mean, it was almost like when I looked in his eyes, I mean, he was there, but he was not there. And so when I got the older I got and then, you know, eventually getting married to a veteran and, and finally kind of looking back and seeing, I can see so many, so many signs where every single one of my uncles had post-traumatic stress. Um, and so the one that came back from Vietnam, I mean, he was homeless. Um, he, you know, because that was just a whole total or total different scenario anyways. But when he came back, he was homeless for a while. Um, and, and I never really could understand why. I know why now. I knew why 15, 20 years ago, but as a child, you're not going to understand that. And you, you don't understand, even as a teenager, you know, from my point, being very connected and strong with our, our, our family and be, being very strong and connected, why, why is he not staying at granny's house? Why is he leaving and not wanting to be, you know, around the family? And I think about those things and it, it just is so sad that people have to go through that. But he did not transition well back. I mean, even up until he passed away six years ago, he didn't transition well. Yes, he got jobs and yes, he did what he needed to do. But he did not transition well at all. Yeah, no, and I think that is an all too familiar story um, yeah. around the country. Is that, you know, because they feel so isolated, they don't feel like anybody's going to understand. Um, I find it kind of odd, though, that you said that, like, you had multiple uncles that were veterans. Mm -hmm. I had several they, uncles. Mm -hmm. Did they connect with each other on a different level? Or was he, like, uh, the one that went to Vietnam and the rest were in di different times? So he was on my dad's side. He was the only one that went to Vietnam. The other uncles were on my mom's side. They were brothers. 
Okay. Um, they, I mean, they connected when they came back, but you, they would pull to the side. So when we had like a family reunion, you, everybody was in the group and they were all to one side. <laughs> so my mom's uh, parents had 14 kids. So I come from a huge family. <laughs> there were seven boys. Um, so yes, there's one uncle I never did get to meet. He was, um, he actually died in combat. Um, and his remains are still there to this day. Mm. So, but you know, with my other uncles, yes, it was very different. We all got there together, hanging out, talking. And within about, I don't know, maybe five minutes of even that, the other three were on the other side, you know, and one of them I always called my favorite uncle. Um, they were all my favorite, but he was really my favorite. I got away with a lot more mm -hmm. with him. Um, and so I would just go over there and just kind of hang out with him, you know, and, and it's funny because he uh, drove a semi for a long time when he got out and I would go riding with him on the road. <laughs> so his handle was chopsticks because when he was in, when he was in Japan, he, got the name chopsticks because he couldn't hold the chopsticks when he was eating. So we call them chop chop. Um, well, being on the road back then, a long time ago, you know, they had CB radios. Mm -hmm. And he, so my nickname was Double Trouble. <laughs> that was, that's what he gave me. So I'd be on the radio and, you know, that's what be on CB radio talking with all the truckers and Uncle Chop Chop was riding. So it was Uncle Chop Chop and Double Trouble. I thought, what a combination. <laughs> But um, yes, they, I mean, they were, they would always pull to the side and you could tell they, they limited what they talked about. That was another thing that I picked up. They really limited what they talked about in the open. Yeah, no, because I was asking because um, I come from a military family. Um, I didn't join up right after 9-11. I ended up going in in 05. And with that, um, I remember back like what you were saying like you could spot PTSD in your uncles I look at my dad with me growing up in the house and I can spot PTSD that he was definitely dealing with with just the mannerisms and the actions not that you know my dad was never really a bad date but there was always a little bit of disconnectedness and stuff and like what you were saying how like it was weird when we would have the family gatherings because my grandfather served, my dad served, my, um, all of my dad's uncles served in World War II or Vietnam or Korea. So there was more family members around in the family gatherings that had served. And so all the men seemed to hang out in a, in a certain way and really get along in a different way, except for like my dad's cousin and his son. I think mm -hmm. are still the only two men that haven't served besides like the younger children still in the family. Mm -hmm. But it was a camaraderie. And I think it was because they had all served in either World War II, Korea or Vietnam that they just felt more at ease and they were in each other's company. And there was, because um, you'll see that today is that veterans tend to be a little bit more free with what they say and how they say it when they're around other veterans than they ever do around anybody else and I think there's that part now that's more difficult and I think it really kind of happened with Vietnam is that 
you go over, you do your time, and then you come back. And even in today's day and age where, like, the unit didn't go back over for a while, there was a pretty good chance if you were coming up near on your ET on your um, PCS date that you were going to be off to the next unit, and chances are you were going to somebody that was going to be going back over pretty soon. Um, and I think that's one of the hardest part, because, like, Vietnam, if you were drafted, you were in for two, maybe two and a half years. You basically got trained up. You got sent over, you did your year, if you came home, and then you might have six months on the backside before you were out of the army or out mm -hmm. of the military in general. And I think it's different because World War II, you know, you went in, you got to go home when the war was over. Mm -hmm. And so if you joined a unit, as long as you were alive, not wounded or anything else, you stayed with that unit pretty much the entire time. So you had those people that you could always just pick up a phone, reach out to, and instantaneously there was that connection because of what you had shared together. That doesn't happen a lot today for today's veterans. Um, do you see that lack of kind of that, that shared experience of going through those areas as a major kind of factor in the suicide rate that we're facing today? I do. Um so, you know, like I said, my husband's a veteran, and so he's involved in every single veteran organization in our county. And it's different just, you know, from watching the different age groups and for those that are much older versus those coming out now. Um, it's It's different to see how this age group handles and is dealing with what they experienced. Whereas this younger age group, they're gonna be more vocal. Um, they're, you know, yes, they have trauma, but they're a lot more vocal about the experience and, you know, the things that they um, experienced and that they saw. I know last, last week I was in Florida at the Florida hostage negotiator conference. And I was getting a call from the adjutant at the Legion and she called and she, you know, I wasn't able to take the call right then. So I texted her and I said, you know, I can't right now I'm at this conference. Cause I thought she was just calling to talk. And she said, well, we need you right now. And I'm going, oh, that's never a good sign. That's never mm -hmm. a good sign. Um, because I always handle those things here in my county with our vets. Um, and so I said, what's going on? Because we were really genuinely getting ready, getting prepared, Dan and I were, um, to present. And she said, she gave me the name and I said, okay, give, make sure he has my number. And I said, or she said, there's no point. He died last night. And I said, oh my gosh. So I just told him, I said, I got to go take, you know, I got to go take this call. And so I go out and I call her. And he actually, um, he died at his best friend's house who was in the military with him and they went into the military together. So um, I, when I, as soon as I got back home, I had to take care of that. <clears throat> and yeah, so, that's, that's yeah, so it's definitely different within the age groups. It's, I see so much more of the suicides in the younger groups than I do with the older groups. <clears throat> do you think um, 
that it, it's not that the, I don't think the traumas have gone anymore. Do you think it's just that the older groups, there's a lot of them that didn't make it to be older because they are do they did the same thing and there was just less awareness about the situation not to say that there's a lot of awareness about it now but that you know a lot of the older vets didn't get to be older vets because there wasn't a chance for them to become older vets right um i do agree with that and i think that it was not as um aware you know there's always been that stigma <clears throat> because so many people when you hear post-traumatic stress or anxiety or depression they automatically jump to that stigma and that's not what it should be about. What it should be about is getting them the help and the healing that they need um, to handle those situations and those events. Um, but yes, one being that it was not, they didn't make and talk about it as much back then as they do now. And so that's a lot of the things that I see as to why, a lot of them didn't make it and if they did make it they self-medicated and yeah, so we're yeah. saying you know with the medication and then with you know the alcohol so when you're depressed what is alcohol alcohol is a depressant so you're depressed you drink you become more depressed um they didn't have the skills that was allotted to them or given to them to be able to say hey you know yes, something's wrong and I need to work on me. Whereas, you know, more so before, let's just shut it down. No, you're okay. Just suck it up, buttercup and go on. And that's not how it should be. That's how it should have never been like that. Um, but unfortunately, that's how it really was a long time ago. Oh, no. And it, I would say it still is in a lot of ways, um, except now it's not just alcohol that I think is being the big um, medication of choice, I guess, for self-medication, you know, because of the availability of meth, heroin, um, mm -hmm. those out there that really do um, kind of take over the aspect of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that alcohol can't, not to say that marijuana can't, but I don't like as an ER nurse, I would take a lobby full of really, really stoned people on marijuana any day of the week over a lobby full of drunk people. Mm -hmm. And that's that's hands down. I don't think there's going to be an ER nurse around the country that's probably going to argue with that one. But you still see them medicating. And if it's one of those things where like the anxiety can kind of get done because they're able to concentrate more because they've they got into meth and doing it and there's a positive aspect to what they're looking for at the beginning that eventually becomes a very negative aspect and i think that's kind of uh true regardless of the substance that they're using mm -hmm. um, and i don't think it's getting better i just think that it's not you know it's like larry the town drunk doesn't seem to exist as much anymore but who knows because now you've got uncle larry doing whatever they can get their hands on and so you see different factors but i think what it always has been and what it still continues to be is that there's some sense especially if you're a military veteran that 
the only reason why you're doing this is because somehow you weren't strong enough to be like everybody else who's not dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And I think the majority of people probably end up dealing with it and don't admit that they're dealing with it. Then there is people that don't deal with it in whatever shape or form because I don't know of anybody that can say that they've, they went overseas and didn't come back changed in some way, shape or form. And, and two, a lot of people, you know, a lot of our veterans are dealing with it, but they're not dealing with it. They're masking it. You know, what I taught for many, many years at the college. And one of the things or one of the analogies that I always used was we all have masks. I'm this mask at home. I'm this mask at school. I'm this mask in public. I'm this mask here. Everybody has that mask. And so I think a the best way that I kind of put that analogy is people are masking it, but they're not dealing with it. And so by not dealing with it, the more they mask it, the more it bites them, the more they mask it, the more they self-medicate, the more they do something else, the more it bites them, you know, and it just becomes what I call a snowball effect um, because they may make it out that they're dealing with it but in reality they are not dealing with it they're not dealing with the trauma they're not dealing with the anxiety and they are not dealing with that depression um because they in their mindset well if i just get up and go to work and do what i gotta do everybody's gonna think i'm okay but in reality they're not okay you know what they do when they get alone or when they're with family the immediate family or or close friends it's a whole different scenario Oh, yeah. No, I can definitely admit to that because um, I know I did it for many, many years where, um, yeah, I'd walk through the door, say hi, and then disappear into a room behind a door because that's what I did. And there was usually maybe a six pack or a 12 pack of beer that went along with me. And it's not to say that I'm... 100% okay today because I don't think anybody is ever truly 100% okay kind of going forward. There's always going to be things that you're going to have to work through. And I know that my journey is continuing and I'm, and I know that, you know, there's things that I'm doing that I might not do here in the future, but there's going to be something else that's going to replace that process and maybe in a different way that I find has a better effect for me. And that I think is, what people need to look for is that, you know, your program, I'm not going to lie, it sounds almost too good to be true. I'm not discounting it because I know you guys do a, a lot of data collection and research to prove it so you can apply for the grants. Um, but it it's as close to like that magic bullet or that magic pill that I've heard of so far and yeah. going through my journey and yeah, I haven't been through your program, but that doesn't mean I might not go after this interview and go sign up and just see it. Because if it works as well as what you're saying it does, I'd be stupid not to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you got to do is say, hey, I want to do it. I'll take care of it. <laughs> I mean, I, and I think any veteran or anybody that sees this, if they know anybody that's struggling that meets the criteria, yeah, I think it'd be stupid for them at least not to honestly look at it. Because I think there's a lot we'll admit to ourselves in like those deep, dark crevices of our mind of like, hey, yeah, you know, I'm probably not, but you know, I'm not as bad as this guy over here. And I think there's a big thing of, 
I'm not as bad off as somebody else. So I don't want to take the resources from that guy that's really going to need them. And I think there's a lot of times veterans delay looking for help because of that. So, so my, my question to you and everybody else that's, that's listening or watching would be, what is the harm in going through the process, regardless of who and how many that you think may be better or worse? It's not about that. What would stop someone for, you know, from going through that process? One, for our mission clients, I've already told you it's not going to cost you anything. You're going to remain at home. We use a telehealth platform. Nobody's going to get your personal information. We don't report to the VA. We don't report to the employer. It's completely confidential. And how would it not be better to go ahead and get that relief, get that healing that you deserve? Because every single one of our mission clients deserve it. Everybody deserves it. But I can speak, you know, for our mission clients, every single hero deserves to be healed. Every yeah. single one. And I, I can't agree more because um, I think it's an absolute travesty that we spend as much as we do on defense in this country. I don't, I, I got to do some research, but not a lot of that money actually goes to the soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, whatever they call the Space Force guys and the Coast Guard guys. Um, mm-hmm. I know they call it the Coasties what they call them, but I know how to make fun of Coasties. I get, I do respect them though, because they do their job every day while the rest of us just do it very intently for a period of time and they come back and train to do our job all the time. Um, I forgot where I was going, but... Um, Talking about you getting... The way my mind works sometimes. <laughs> it's like, oh, You go into the process. Bam, it's gone. Um uh, yeah, I think that is a combination of ADD and TBIs because Lord knows how many concussions I've had in my life. Uh, right. No, but it's, I think that, you know, with as rich as this country is, to literally just have a debate in Congress where they wanted to cut 22% of the funding going to veterans and veterans are already hurting enough. How do we get how do we get there from where we're at? It's like, we don't have enough money to take care of them the way it is. And yet we still want to cut benefits from the military for them when they retire. Um, We want to cut funding to the VA to take care of veterans after they get out of uniform. But yet our defense budget goes up by hundreds of billions of dollars. It seems like every few years, I just don't understand how, One party or the other, regardless of what party you you prescribe to, I don't see how any of them can justify those types of cuts when it comes to it, because there's n- I don't think there's any ground for anyone to stand on if they are willing to cut funding for the veterans that have served and served with with honor and distinction and went out to do a job because their country ask them to because today they can't tell you to they can only ask you to and everybody that signs up today signs up of their own free will and a lot of them are looking for a better life than what they came from so they're looking for a way to become citizens and that's true and you know something you said i was just sitting here thinking 
So you're saying 22% of the budget they want to cut. So theoretically, that's another 22 a day. Oh, yeah. Already got an um, average 22 a day. Now, granted, I've already said that I believe those numbers are very, very low, conservatively low. But just hypothetically, you've already got, and they know, the VA knows that on average there's 22 that die a day by suicide. And now we've got where they're looking at cutting 22% of the budget. Well, it was when the whole um, debt ceiling thing was going on, the Republican plan called for a 22% decrease in VA funding to allow them to vote to say to raise the debt cap again for the country. And it was something like, it would have been 30 million annual visits lost at the VA with that cut in funding. Hmm. And it's like, it's not just, we wouldn't be losing veterans, not only for suicide for something like that, we'd also be losing veterans that had to wait to go in and get a surgery or something done because they couldn't find the time or couldn't get an appointment to go in there and do it, or it would get so drawn out that they'd end up having a different complication and dying from something. And it's already, it's already like that short in the healthcare <laughs> across the country. So it's not like people are already struggling to try and get into these things just because there's not enough staff to take care of them anymore. It's, it, it's exactly right. I was just before we got on um, some of my cousins and Marine, um, and he, we were talking and he has already had a one toe amputated. And he, when I was talking to him, I said, how are you doing? And he said, well, guess what? He said, I'm on hold. I said, well, what do you mean you're on hold? And he said, well, last week I noticed that there was another toe that turned black. And I went to the VA and they said, we'll do this. But they they wouldn't admit him, but yet he had an infection, find out he had MRSA. Mm -hmm. Just get, go home and get off of it. You know, he won't give him antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> really? Come on now. He's yeah. got an infection. So he's already been through this once, you know, six months ago. Um, so, yes. it. And he then he said he was told he would have to go drive about three and a half hours away from where he lives. And he's in a I mean, he's in a big metropolitan area. And he said, I have to drive three and a half hours to go get treatment. Why? You know, yeah. help help me understand why our men and women give everything they've got to serve and protect us. And then they get treated that way. Yeah, because I, I know it's, I think people think that the VA is like one gigantic, and it is to a point, one gigantic system. But what they've got to understand is that it's broken down to the point where no two VAs operate the same. Oh, no, they don't. Mm -mm. And no. you can move between them, but they say if you've only worked at one VA in your VA career, then you've worked at one VA in your VA career because you go to another one, it's not going to be the same than what you got. And I find it I find it very odd that an organization as large as that is, is allowed to exist in that way. Because it's like in the army, you go, it's going to be different at every post or every unit you go to in some way, shape or form, but the same basic regulations govern everything. 
and right. they're they don't leave a lot of wiggle room mm-hmm. in certain respects for how you're supposed to act what you're supposed to look like how you're supposed to maintain your equipment how you're supposed to do certain things whereas the va it's like oh well here's some guidelines and here's some regulations you have to abide by because those are like national regulations that every healthcare system has to abide by but how you choose to create your systems to meet all these requirements that we put over here is completely up to you at each and individual mm-hmm. VA. And I think that becomes very, very frustrating because I think it allows some VAs to operate fantastically because they have people that are willing to put forth that work and are always looking to do stuff. But I think for the most part, it allows people to basically say, oh, well, this process has worked for this many years. We don't need to change it because there's no reason to change it since it's been working for so long. And it's like, no, that's just called being lazy. Yeah, but in in reality, how well is it working? <laughs> yeah, and that's the whole thing is that. <laughs> and you can't get them to understand that. So what I want you to think about for those that are listening, is, again, we are not a mental health facility. We are not going to report to the VA. If you tell the VA that's that's your business, it's not ours. We're not reporting to your employer. If you tell your employer that is your business, not ours, all we want to do, we just want to see you healed. That's it. Um, You know, I think back just in listening with some of the things that we we talk about. So so I grew up in the Blue family or family. My dad was a cop. um, And I swear to you, I promise you his partner looked just like Barney Fife. Um, <laughs> I remember him coming to the house and later on Andy Griffith would come on and I would ask daddy daddy he was here why was he here <laughs> you know because he's on TV. <laughs> I remember that to this day but so it's not just the veterans. There's a, whole, there's a whole portion of the people that just went who? Yes I know <laughs> this one but we get it we get it yeah. um, but um, but in reality you know my dad, I remember when he went into law enforcement and I remember after he started working in law enforcement and I got a different day. Um, mm-hmm. He loved me. He took care of me. He was there for me. But there were a lot of times he was not there for me. His body was there, but he was not there. Um, and so even within law enforcement and, you know, and within the fire department, paramedics, same thing, you know, um, those first responders there are so many that if you just sit back and think about all the things that we have talked about this evening you know if you are a veteran or first responder everything we have talked about even with the examples and the stories you've lived it you're living it and if you haven't yet you're going to oh yeah bottom line you're going to and that includes the kids so we don't want the kids to you know have to bear the brunt of that um, dynamic within that family. Let us get them healed as well. No, and I think that the fact that it's not just the veteran, it's the entire family that can access your services, I think is huge as well. Speaking of which, because I know we're kind of going a little long-winded here, but that's fine. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find you, how to sign up, because I'm sure it's all on a website someplace, but it is. What did you say yeah. that I do? So, and it is. Um, and just did I happen to email you the veteran report that we did? Because we did a veteran report and a first responder report. Um, I didn't see it in an email that 
doesn't mean you didn't like link it up in the bio information that you put in. Okay, because I, I thought I did, because there's data in there. Um, and you, if you want to share that, that's fine. But, um, and if, if it didn't, because I uploaded several things, I actually didn't put the first responder in there because I knew this was geared more toward the veteran side of, of the population. But if you want me to go back and, and reset to you, I will. Um, to, there's several ways. So if you go to the 220, it's the number 22zero.org, 220.org um, is our website. We are actually in the process of getting the website updated. Thank you, Mr. Jess. Jess Elaine <laughs> from Selene <laughs> Production is helping reorganize and then revamping the website um, and updating it. But they had not had some updating work done on it in some time. So it's getting much needed, taken uh, priority look at at this point. Um, but 220.org. So one of the things you're going to notice is on the homepage, on the top right-hand side, is there's in the header, it says contact. If you go in and you fill out that information, it's basic information, and hit the submit button, then it's going to automatically come to me. Uh, and it will also come to Tricia, our social worker. That's one method of contacting us. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom where it says get help, it's get help at 220.org. You can submit your information in that way. Just be sure and put your phone number so, you know, we can call you to start that process. That's one method. My phone, the 1-800 number, which comes to my phone, is also on the website. Okay, so there's several ways to, to reach us. But I will encourage you, so on the, the homepage, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the documentary Healing the Heroes, Paying It Forward, was released. Uh, Michael Geyer did a production for Healing the Heroes. It's on our website. It's about an hour and maybe four or five minutes. And it's individuals that were in New York on 9-11 working as first responders oh, in the Pentagon, too. So there were first responders from New York and the Pentagon that were working 220 went there. They worked with, they interviewed them prior to going before they went through the process. Then there's a section where Dan, which is the one that uh, Dan Jarvis is the one who actually spoke 220 into existence. Um, he speaks about why and how the process got started as far as 220. And then at the very end, they worked with them behind the scenes, so you're not going to see the actual protocols because that's trademarked, and mm -hmm. we're in the process of getting that patent. <clears throat> but you'll see the difference in them after they've gone through the process. Um, I would really, really encourage you to watch that because that gives you a really good understanding um, of what we do. No, and then that, that that is great. Didn't realize that was on there. I've seen. I tend to watch a lot of different history programs and stuff like that because my wife looks at me like, does this calm me down? And I'm like, um, actually, yeah. Because <laughs> it doesn't for me. And I'm like, eh, we come from a little bit different background. But no, um, thank you for joining me. I would love to have another conversation like this again. Um, like I said, uh, the podcast is going to start up on the 10th of July and I will definitely be uh, 
sending out some more information because I think just periodically checking back and seeing kind of like what's going on with your organization as a whole and just having discussions about the current state of affairs of the place that is affecting first responders, um, military veterans, military in general and their families and just kind of seeing it because Lord knows it's definitely not an easy time politically for a lot of different types of people in this country. Um, that, yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting to see, I think, what happens with the next major elections and the direction that this country chooses to go in. And it may be good, it may be bad, um, but, you know, everybody's going to have their opinion on that. And I am more than happy to discuss that, but I don't think that's what this conversation was about. But because I grew up in the like the late 80s and the 90s where those conversations is kind of what you did and people are like you don't talk politics at the bar and i'm like why not it's what all, it's the only thing going on today. <laughs> plus it's fun because everybody gets to have fun and drink a little bit and you get to say what it is and by the end of the day no one really cares about what you were talking about because you've got to know somebody and you're having some more drinks i don't think that happens today i was going to say that's not today <laughs> um no, I, I remember what you're talking about <laughs> But thank you so much. Um, thank you for just bringing that information about your organization to light because the organization is 220.org. Um, if you are a veteran, an active duty military member in the reserves, National Guard, a first responder, a cop, a firefighter, a paramedic, an EMT, an EMS in any way, shape or form or related to any of them. And you feel like you need some help definitely reach out because I'm probably going to be filling out that information when we get down here tonight because honestly be stupid not to if it's going to help it's going to help and again Dr. Pam thank you so much for being here because I, I love what your organization is doing and I think more people need to be made aware of just how many vets we're losing on a day Yeah, because that's Quite a few. Quite a few. Um, you know, and, and to leave, I'm going to leave with this. To our heroes, you deserve the healing. It's time for you to get that healing and focus on you being able to receive that healing. It's not going to cost you anything but some time. And imagine what it would look like if you woke up tomorrow without having post-traumatic stress having anxiety and having depression related to post-traumatic stress, what would that day look like for you? Then go to our website, then watch the documentary, then contact me so we can get you set up and get you assigned to a coach and get you on that healing path. Nope. Well said. Um, thank you again so much. And I will let you go because you are a few hours ahead of me and I, no, it's dinner time here, so I can only imagine it's past <laughs> dinner time for you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let me know. Um, you've got my number. So just let me know if you want to uh, do the pre-assessment tomorrow. We'll do it. Or if you want to do it when you hang up, it won't take but five minutes. That's another thing. You can let it be known. To do the pre-assessment takes about five minutes on the phone. That's it. Boom. Then I'll go ahead and assign it. So there's no waiting list. All right. Well, that is also good to know, but I'm going to let you go because I know you're definitely a bit busier woman than 
I am. And I've got a family that I think is itching to see me because I haven't seen all but one of them since I got home today from work. <laughs> go to the daddy thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get, get the dogs and the kids to go see. So have a great evening. Um, I will be reaching out again because I think just sitting down and having a conversation and kind of watching where America goes politically, I think it's going to dramatically affect how mm -hmm. um, veterans are taken care of in this country. So, uh, yeah, I wish you and your husband the best. I understand that, not personally, but I, I can empathize with the situation and I do wish both of you all the best going forward with that. And thank you. And on that, I'm going to leave it because I think you already said it the best of what anybody could say it. So if you feel like you need help in any way, shape or form, 220.org, because what do you got to lose? And the answer is nothing. So you might as well get right. it. Right. That's it. All right. Have a great evening. Thank you.